We're going to be carrying on with this series in Nehemiah tonight, uh, the story of a man building a wall for the city of Jerusalem. Um, Let me pray and then we'll read Nehemiah 6. Father God, please put your spirit at work amongst us today. I'm, I'm conscious that I am not strong enough or wise enough to teach. We're conscious that our hearts are by nature, ones that will struggle to learn, that will not be able to uh, get to grips with your glory and your goodness without your help. So please be at work amongst us tonight. Show us what we need to know, challenge our hearts, teach us the things that we need to, to learn for the week ahead and beyond. Amen. Let's look at Nehemiah 6, verses 1 to 15. Um, It's on page 488 and 489 in your church Bibles. Um, And I'll read that. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his assistant to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said... Should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Many of you will know that in my daily life I'm a physics teacher. Um, It's forgivable. Uh, I teach GCSE and A-level students in a school in North Oxford and I'm under no illusions about my capabilities. I'm just not one of those super organised teachers with amazing resources and well-structured lessons. 
what I've got going for me is I love my subject. I really do love it. And, and what that means is that usually in the year, it doesn't take my classes very long to work out, that they can choose to derail most of my lessons. Um, all they've got to do is ask an interesting question and, and things head off down the rabbit hole. Um, now, aside from just being a bit of a science geek and being fascinated by details, one of the things I love about physics is the way that everything boils down to just a handful of basic rules. So there's the, the conservation of energy, conservation of momentum, the, the second law of thermodynamics. There's a handful of others. And we can take simple principles like those and we can apply them everywhere. And we see them working out in all kinds of different situations to, to completely different results. And I think that's really cool. So, so one of my favourites is just a pattern. It's called the square cube law. And it's the same reasoning. With, the same reasoning that tells, people, tells us how fast people fall compared to elephants. You can use to work out why Mars doesn't have a magnetic field and why custard powder explodes, and why insects don't get bigger than about this, and why nuclear bombs need a certain amount of fuel. It's the same principle in loads of different places. Okay? Reading and studying the Bible, I think we've got something similar. In, in this series, we're looking at a guy in a, a really special situation. So Nehemiah, he lived in a foreign land nearly 3,000 years ago. And he had this specific role to play. He was to go back to Jerusalem, where the exiles were returning, and he was to help them rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, restore the honour of God's city and God's people. It's a very specific task. It's a unique situation. He lived a life which is different to yours and mine. And so when we read this book, we have to be really careful about drawing parallels between Nehemiah and ourselves. What was right for him isn't necessarily right for us. But his story is governed by a set of fundamental principles, which are anchored in the character of his God, who is unchanging, who is the same God here as in Israel, who is the same God now as back then. And so if we mine down to those principles and see how God relates to his people then, we can take those principles and rules and relationships and apply them to ourselves. So in Nehemiah 6, which we've just read, we've got a sort of case study of someone in a, a specific situation, but they're facing personal opposition and they seem to be responding faithfully. And so as we read it, the question to ask isn't, how should I be like Nehemiah? But what's going on underneath this? And how will that work out for me? So the first thing to say is that it is a fundamental principle of Christianity that things are going to be difficult at times. Throughout the book of Nehemiah, we keep seeing him bump up against opposition. And some of it, sadly, is from amongst the Israelites, but most of it is led by these three outsiders in verse 1. We've got Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab. And it, it really strikes me that as we read through Nehemiah, he, he doesn't go into their motives. 
So you see in chapter 2, verse 10, that they're disturbed that someone has come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. But we don't get much more insight than that. And it's a bit odd, because actually both Sambalat and Tobiah, we find out later, their families are intertwined with Israel by marriages. We'll read later, Tobiah actually seems to set up his business in a room at the temple. They seem in many ways to be very close to the Israelites, unhealthily so. It's not clear why they oppose him so strongly. And Nehemiah, I think he, he never accounts for that. He almost seems bemused by it. And all he manages to say about it during the sweep of the book is, is Lord God, remember them. You know what's going on, even if I don't. Hold them in your justice. We get to see it, I think, with New Testament eyes. It makes a bit more sense to us. Several times Jesus was really clear to his disciples that that to be a follower of him, to be an imitator of him, is going to mean that they will be treated like him. So they will face the same kinds of oppositions and trials that Jesus did. So John 15, for example, in John 15, verse 18 to 21, Jesus says this. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, servants are not greater than their masters. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If they persecuted Christ, they will persecute his people. And we see that working out here. They will persecute Nehemiah because Christ's people do not belong to the world. Sambala and Tobiah and Geshem, they do not know the Lord And so they reject his plans and they oppose his servants. They're they're working to and they're they're following different priorities. So without wanting to encourage spiritual paranoia, if you are a follower and an imitator of Jesus, you will also face attack. (coughs) It, It might be that's something you're aware of right now. Maybe it's something which is not on your radar, but it will happen. It's unlikely to be the same as Nehemiah's. It's unlikely to be foreign leaders trying to do you in. But there will be people who will mock and reject Christians. And possibly more importantly, although it's not happening here in Nehemiah, there will be spiritual attack. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So there's going to be times of temptation. There's going to be times of failure and darkness and and losing sight of what we've got in Jesus. And we need to think through the principles of how we respond. Nehemiah 6 doesn't give a comprehensive guide, but we do get three attacks and three responses. So so let's look at those now. The the first is in verses 1 to 4. I think it's quite simple. It's a physical threat. Look at verses 1 and 2. And you see Sambalat and Geshem sending him an invite to a meeting. At first glance, it seems Nehemiah's being a bit paranoid. It's just an invitation. It's innocuous enough. But 
It is a little bit odd that they're asking him to meet out on the plain of Ono. That's in the countryside. It's away from towns and cities. It's on the border of Israel. It's dangerous territory. At the very least, they're asking Nehemiah to take a day to travel there, maybe a day or longer for the meeting, and then a day to travel back. And, and it, it's going to mean he's out of Jerusalem, not supervising the work for half a week or more. So at the least, it's going to be an attempt to delay or derail the finishing of the defences in Jerusalem. But it's almost certainly more than that. It's probably an attempt to dispose of Nehemiah himself. We know from previous chapters, Jerusalem is now pretty well guarded. He's got guards that King Artaxerxes sent with him. And now also he's got the working population carrying arms. He's, He's well defended in Jerusalem. But if they can get him out of the city, away from witnesses, away from guards, he'll be an easy target. He can be kidnapped or or killed, and and maybe the blame can be put on bandits. Seems especially likely, because when Nehemiah says, no, I can't leave Jerusalem, there's no effort to find a better alternative to, to meet halfway. They just try again and again, inviting him out into the countryside. How does he respond to it? Well, first thing to spot is in verse 2, he says that they were scheming to harm me. Now, I not naive. God's people are called in, in Matthew 10 to be as innocent as doves, but as wise as serpents. Nehemiah is paying attention here to what's going on around him. He knows there's a sense in which that he's, he's in hostile territory. And so he's already alert for attack. And ask, is that part of the way that you see the world? If I do believe that being a follower of Christ will mean that I face hostility, and if I do believe that the devil exists, then am I considering and thinking through the places that I'm vulnerable? Is that part of my prayer life? Am I asking the Lord for for wisdom to show me where I'm at risk? Am I asking him for protection then in those areas of my life? Or am I kidding myself that I'm strong enough and safe enough to stand up to temptation and trials on my own? Am I praying for others that he would protect them from this? Have I got my eyes open to danger or do I actually live like I think we're safe? I mean, we're on home turf here, right? Do I actually live thinking that this is my territory rather than looking forward to a real home in heaven? Maybe Nehemiah's got more obvious foes than you or I, but but he's still on the lookout He's aware of danger, and so he responds appropriately. And how? Well, well, what he chooses is dictated, I think, here and throughout this passage, by, by what he knows is important. He knows his place. He, he's been tasked with this job to do, and so he's not going to book anything that takes him away from it. Verse 3, I, I'm carrying on a great project. I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave and go down to you? 
He knows what he's been called to. He knows the one who's called him. And so he keeps his energy focused there. He won't be lured away. It's the first attack. I think a physical threat. The second one, slightly more subtle, is an attack on his reputation in verses 5 to 9. It flows on from that first one. They haven't been able to lure him out of Jerusalem, even after four tries. So they kind of give up on that. And instead, they turn his unwillingness to play ball with them into a political issue. This time, they resend their invitation, knowing he'll refuse. But, but crucially, in verse 5, it's sent with this unsealed letter, framing Nehemiah's response in as dangerous a way as they can. So Sambalat's assistant has been sent all the way through the territory of Israel to Jerusalem. And the idea is because the letter's unsealed, everyone he meets along the way is going to have read it. It's a deliberate attempt to start rumours and to get tongues wagging. It's like the difference between writing a private email to someone and publishing an open letter in a national newspaper. Verse 6 is, is crazy, isn't it? I mean, it? It sounds almost like a playground taunt. It's reported among the nations. Everyone knows. And Geshem says it's true. And it'd be almost laughable. Except that they're accusing him of rebellion and treason. Now, Nehemiah knows that by God's grace, he was sent there by the king. He knows he's done nothing wrong. But if this slur on his reputation is taken seriously, and if the king thinks that he's plotting rebellion, or even just if enough other people believe the rumours and the king is forced to act, it's curtains. At the very least, he'll be summoned back to Susa to straighten things out. And he could easily end up in much more serious trouble. And once Nehemiah and the king's authority are out of the way, that will be the end of the work to rebuild Jerusalem. It's a slur on his public reputation. It's got the potential to undermine everything that he's done. How does Nehemiah respond? Well, well, first, verse 8, he says the accusation's false. Maybe they already know that. It's probably just completely malicious storytelling. But on the other hand, maybe as they're looking at the Jews and watching them rebuild, they're interpreting it in their own terms. Given that kind of chance, what would I do? They're accusing Nehemiah of a worldly ambition like, like they have to be a king. Possibly it's, it's because they see in him what they know they would aim at. Perhaps it's like in John 15 here, the the world failing to understand what is different about God's people. And on the other hand, perhaps Nehemiah or some of the other Israelites are tempted by this. I'd imagine he must have taken the time to think through where this rumour might have come from. Have I given this impression? Do, Do I hold this ambition? He must have examined himself. He must have checked to see that it's false. He must have worried. They must have been frightened. He says in in verse 9, that's the target, isn't it? They were hoping to frighten us, to weaken us so that we couldn't work. 
and thinking about the way that we come under attack. Isn't that so often the focus? Perhaps you've encountered physical threat where, where intimidation like this is intended to scare you so that you won't stick to what you know is right. More likely, think of the way that the devil attacks you. I assume he does, if you're a believer. How can you be dissuaded from working at something that's right? How can you be dissuaded from going to something that you think is important? There are two things which work really well against me. Okay, the, the first is like in the letter, pride. Tricking me into declaring myself king. Thinking I'm, I'm clever enough or strong enough to get stuff done. And second is like in verse 9, making me aware of my weakness. So that I realise that I'm, I'm too rubbish to get anything done. And so I give up. Sometimes both at once, self-contradictory though it is. And both of those are fatal to good endeavour, aren't they? I'm aware of both when I'm, when I'm preparing a sermon, or a Bible study, or, or throwing myself into anything that's worthwhile. And I, I'm no Nehemiah, I am easily diverted. How about you? Look at the response then in verse 9. Sambalat thought that showing the Israelites their weakness would stop them. By the world's standards, it should have. But he didn't realise that for the Israelites, that was the whole point. They have seen that they can't stand as a nation on their own. They've spent 70 years in exile because of their weakness. They know that it's only by the Lord's power that they've been returned to Jerusalem. And it's only by his strength that the temple and the walls are being rebuilt. And so their response with Nehemiah here is consciousness of that vulnerability. And praying instead, God, strengthen our hands in verse 9. He's glimpsed what's fully revealed in the New Testament, I think. That the Lord's strength and wisdom are made perfect as they act through human weakness. That is shown ultimately, of course, on the cross. But then it's echoed in the lives of Christ's people as we stand not on our strength, but on his. Um, there was a lovely prayer mnemonic that John Piper recommends to preachers like me. And it's APTAT, A-P-T-A-T. First, admit your weakness, reflect on the state of your heart, acknowledge the inadequacy. And then obviously P, pray for help. Ask the Lord to be at work rather than your own power. And then that's the A and the P, but then crucially T-A-T, trust the Lord. He responds to prayers. Trust that his power is revealed in, in weak and faulty people. And then A, act out in faith. And T, afterwards, consciously give thanks and credit where it's due. I find that incredibly useful. And here I think that's the kind of attitude that Nehemiah is showing in verse 9. Sambalat couldn't have predicted it. He, he reckoned on intimidating the people, showing them that they were too weak to finish the project, but they already know it. And they know their God is stronger. Verse 9, I, I prayed, now strengthen my hands. 
third attack, more subtle, even more cynical. Faced with a, a godly leader who's not interested in covering his own back, and who's not going to be intimidated by their political moves, Tobiah and Sambalat devise this plan to chip away at his religious credentials. They hire this prophet, Shemaiah, in verse 10. And, and he, he's an Israelite, but sadly plenty of the Israelites seem to have compromised loyalty. And, and Shemaiah puts on this good act. In verse 10, he, he shuts himself up in his house like a man who's scared for his life. And he says, look, Nehemiah, you're in danger. They're coming to kill you. You're going to be murdered in your sleep. They're coming at night. You're not even safe here with me. We need to go into the temple. We can lock ourselves up there for protection. It's the safest place in Israel. You'll be well guarded. And the stumbling block is verse 13. They want Nehemiah to run into the temple and shut the doors. They want him to treat the temple as his personal fort. They want him perhaps to go into the innermost room, the Holy of Holies, where no one except the high priest is allowed. And then they can point to his sin and discredit him in the eyes of his people. And again, Nehemiah's response shows what saves him. He knows his place before the Lord. So verse 11, should someone like me run away? His call has not been to run for his life, but, but to take on a dangerous task and complete it in faith. What would it say about his calling or about his Lord who called him if he's so easily dissuaded? And then again in verse 11, should one like me go into the temple to save his life? He's not prepared to compromise the, the holiness of the Lord's house. He knows that he's not ritually clean enough to go there. I will not go, he says. And I think the key thing to see here in each of these attacks, that the fundamental principle for us is that it's not that Nehemiah is a courageous, strong believer who won't compromise. He's not being held up here as the gold standard to imitate. In fact, reading the book, he's pretty weak. He has no comeback against his enemies. So verse 1 to 4, all he can do is ignore them. In verse 8, it's just his word against theirs. In verse 11 to 13, by the grace of God, he doesn't fall into their trap. But he, he's got no comeback, no response. And for all he knows, this false prophet in verse 9 isn't wrong. Quite possibly, from his point of view, Tobiah, Gishim, Sambalat's next move will be just to assassinate him and get it over with. Even seven chapters later at the end of the story, Nehemiah hasn't really won. His enemies are still at large. So the key principle isn't that he's strong, but that he's secure in the face of these attacks because he sees things as they really are. He's not dependent on his strength to win, so he doesn't panic when his neck's on the line. Rather, when he sees his weakness and fear in verse 9, he prays, God, you strengthen me. 
when he sees unfair attacks against him again and again from foreign enemies, and then gallingly from so-called prophets of Israel, his response in verse 14, it's it's not to go out and try to defeat them, it's simply to pray with confidence. Lord God, remember what's happening. Justice is yours and I can depend on them. And maybe he prays from frustration. I don't know. His enemies are still standing. They're still attacking God's people. But but even if that's the case, he can pray with secure knowledge. His God does remember. His God does endure. His God will establish and love his people and will remain faithful forever to his covenant promises. And so verse 15, that the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. What do we take from that? Well, I, I think the fundamental principle is that if you're a Christian, your confidence is not in yourself. We will face opposition, of course, maybe of a different flavour to Nehemiah's, but it will come. And perhaps you will weather that as admirably as Nehemiah does. Maybe more likely you'll be like me and you'll stumble from embarrassing failure to embarrassing failure. But either way, our joy and our comfort is that when we're confronted with our weakness, like in verse 9, and we see that our hands are just not up to the task, we get to look at things from the perspective that the world doesn't see. Our victory has been won. Our price has been paid. Jesus' blood on the cross has ransomed me from from all of the enemy's accusations. Jesus' resurrection at Easter has given proof positive that his power is greater than the world's. And the simple fact that the Lord has already paid such a high price leaves us with no doubt that he will then do everything more that is needed to achieve his purposes and to bring us safely home. Our weakness isn't part of that equation. And so when we're we're confronted by opposition or by that crushing knowledge of our failures or by temptation, we get to pray like Nehemiah, Lord, remember, be faithful to your promises. Lord, strengthen our hands in your power. And we can have confidence in him.